Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This week, we continue our look back at the 1980s output of Oscar-winning filmmaker Martin Scorsese with one of his best and most underrated movies, After Hours. Why don't you just go home? I've been asking myself that one all night long. So what happened? Why can't you? I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> so when I got home, I gave her a call. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. I didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Kiki! So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Cool boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on! But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up. What is this? I'm in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. Now, this part, you're going to say, oh, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. But it's true. Mohawk this guy. I couldn't believe that. That's him. Tell him. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I got to tell who you didn't do what. Help! 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 Call the police. What's with you? Are you nuts or something? Luckily, there was this girl who saw the whole thing. You're dead, pal. And what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor, damn it. Is that all they After Hours, when anything can happen, and usually does. Is that unbelievable or what? That's all there is, my friend. Then let's keep dancing. The story of After Hours begins not with Martin Scorsese wanting to adapt one of his favorite novels, as has often been the case in his long and storied career, but with Joseph Minion, who, while studying filmmaking at Columbia University in New York City, started to write a screenplay about one very strange night in the life of a clean-cut Upper East Side New Yorker who dares to venture out of his comfort zone by heading down to the wild world of Soho late one evening because of a girl. His story, at first titled Lies, would find a patron saint in Yugoslavian filmmaker Dusan Makaveyev, one of Minion's professors at Columbia, who brought the screenplay to the attention of Griffin Dunn, the co-star of John Landis's An American Werewolf in London, who had his own production company, Double Play, with friend and fellow actor Amy Robinson. Dunn and Robinson had already produced Joan Micklin Silver's 1979 comedy Chilly Scenes of Winter and had just completed producing John Sayles' 1983 period drama Baby It's You, and they were looking for their next project. As luck would have it, the movie had a great leading role in Paul Hackett, a word processor who has the best, worst night of his life, one that seemed tailored specifically to an actor like Griffin Dunn. Not that Dunn and Robinson would be looking for movies for them to star in. Lies, which ended up being retitled One Night in Soho, would end up being the only movie of the seven they would produce together 
to feature either of them in any acting capacity whatsoever. When Dunn and Robinson went searching for directors, they actually knew exactly who they wanted. They wanted Martin Scorsese, the quintessential modern New York director. But with only a $3.5 million budget to play with, they needed to search for somebody who they felt could do the film justice at a low budget. Their second choice would be Tim Burton, the then 25-year-old Disney animator turned filmmaker who had just completed his second live-action short film, Frankenweenie. Everyone was ready to start rolling cameras on the film in the spring of 1984. And then Paramount Pictures would, thanks to something akin to the butterfly effect, throw a monkey wrench into those plans. If you listened to our previous episode, you'll know that the week before Christmas in 1983, Paramount pulled the plug on Scorsese's planned adaptation of The Last Temptation of Christ, which would put the filmmaker into a deep funk. One that was not helped after Christmas when, by chance, he would see an episode of the trashy entertainment tabloid show Entertainment Tonight doing a year-end recap episode, which would name his King of Comedy as THE flop movie of the year. Scorsese was hurt. Scorsese was pissed. And he needed to get attached to a new project quickly before his career was too damaged. His lawyer, Jay Julian, was aware that Dunn and Robinson had originally wanted Scorsese to direct After Hours, but felt that they couldn't afford him. And, you know, he was busy with The Last Temptation. So when Scorsese found himself unexpectedly available, Julian would call Dunn and Robertson in to meet with the director, and they quickly banged out an agreement to work together. But what to do about Tim Burton? Dunn and Robinson would make the call to the neophyte director, who fully understood that the producers were able to get their first choice director. They would also help him find a new film, thanks in part to Steve Martin, whose Aspen Film Society production company was looking for a director for their first movie, Not to Star, Steve Martin. That film was, of course, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. David Geffen, upon hearing this movie he once rejected due to its having a first-time feature director now having a filmmaker of Scorsese's stature, would agree to a negative pickup deal. A Hollywood producing concept we also discussed on our previous episode, and gave them an extra half million dollars to make the film. This would, thanks to Geffen's distribution deal with Warner Brothers, make the film a major studio release right off the bat, instead of having to hope for a deal once the movie was completed. Scorsese would start to assemble one of the best casts he had yet had for a movie. Alongside Dunn, the film would feature Rosanna Arquette, the star of Double Play's Baby It's You as Marcy, the object of Paul's obsession this evening. Linda Fiorentino is Marcy's best friend and temporary roommate who makes papier-mâché bagels for a living. John Hurd as a bartender whose offer to help Paul help send his night over the edge. Terry Garr as the beehive server at Hurd's bar. Tommy Chong and Cheech Marin as a pair of bumbling burglars who help make the night a living hell for Paul. And Verna Bloom, who was having a late career resurgence thanks to her spirited appearance in Animal House, as a lonely woman in a bar who may be Paul's final chance for survival. The film would also feature early roles for Catherine O'Hara, Bronson Pinchot, and Will Patton. 
Production on One Night in Soho would begin just after the 4th of July weekend in 1984 and was scheduled to last for eight weeks. The production would be rough on everyone involved, not only because the vast majority of the movie would need to be shot in the dead of night, but New York City in 1984 wasn't exactly the sanitized, Disney-fied, tourist-friendly destination that it became in the 1990s and 2000s, so everyone would kind of need to keep an eye on each other and all the equipment. But in terms of flow, the production came together rather well. For his cinematographer, Scorsese would choose Michael Ballhaus, a recent transplant from Germany who had shot many of Rainer Werner Fassbinder's movies, who had also recently shot Baby It's You for Dunn and Robinson. This would be the first of seven collaborations between Ballhaus and Scorsese, which would become one of the best collaborations between director and cinematographer. Ballhaus knew how to shoot a movie quickly, and he would come up with some of the best visual gags for the movie on the fly out of sheer necessity. Scorsese, for his part, wanted to make both an homage and a sort of parody of Hitchcock's style of filmmaking, which Ballhaus would lovingly embrace. But one problem Scorsese would have would be the ending. Now, if you've never seen the movie before, stop this show right now and get yourself onto Tubi or HBO Max and watch the movie, because I'm going to spoil the ending right now, even though the damn movie came out 36 years ago. I'll pause for a few seconds. Okay, so while they're watching the movie, let's talk about the ending. Remember how Paul was covered in paper mache into a figure in order to escape the mob that wanted to kill him? Minion's original screenplay for the film ended with Paul still stuck in the paper mache, ending without answering the question of whether or not Paul lived or died or even got out of his paper prison. Scorsese wasn't too keen on that ending, but he shot it anyway. During post-production, Scorsese would assemble a two-and-a-half-hour-long work print, and he would invite a number of his director friends, including Brian De Palma, Terry Gilliam, and Steven Spielberg, to watch the movie and maybe suggest a better way to end the film. Each director would come up with a fantastical idea, but it would be the legendary British filmmaker Michael Powell, who Scorsese idolized and would become a close personal friend thanks to Powell's courting and eventually marrying Scorsese's editor, Thelma Schumacher, who was adamant that no matter what, Paul had to end up back at work the following morning. In the late fall, Scorsese would assemble Dunn, Ballhouse, and a small production team to shoot several of the suggested endings, but the only one that made sense, no matter how unlikely it might have been in real life was for Paul to find himself back in front of his office entrance right as he needed to be back at work the next morning. Michael Powell, the co-director of such classics as A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, and The Tale of Hoffman, was right all along, although the extra production time ended up costing the movie another half million dollars. David Geffen wasn't too bothered. A Martin Scorsese movie for four and a half million dollars? That was a relative bargain at the time. Scorsese and Schumacher would continue editing throughout the winter of 1984 and the spring of 1985, whittling the film down from two and a half hours to a tight 97 minutes, which would be the shortest Scorsese film since 1972's Boxcar Bertha. It would also be around this time 
that the title will be changed once again to After Hours. It was also around the time of the film's completion that NPR writer and essayist Joe Frank would discover After Hours and discover just how much of the screenplay was based on one of his NPR radio monologues, which also happened to be titled Lies. Practically all of the dialogue and plot elements in After Hours' first 30 minutes were lifted verbatim from Frank's 12-minute program, including the character that would become Paul, meeting the character that would become Marcy in a deli, the bagels and cream cheese paperweights, his calling her the same night to buy the paperweights, his losing his cab fare when it flies out the window, her being raped by a former boyfriend who came down the fire escape and fell asleep during said rape, her being married to a man working overseas whom she writes to every day, and said husband's very particular sexual quirk. Frank would sue the production and would settle for what he would later call a handsome payout. Another author Minion would steal from was Franz Kafka, although Kafka would have been dead for 65 years by this point and wouldn't particularly care. When Paul arrives at Club Berlin and starts talking to the club's bouncer, who refuses to let Paul in, their initial dialogue is liberally borrowed from the main passage in Kafka's 1915 short story Before the Law, which itself was a part of Kafka's The Trial, which would not be published until a year after the author's death in 1924. Another newcomer to the Scorsese world would be Howard Shore, the former Saturday Night Live musical director, who had scored several of David Cronenberg's Canadian-made movies, including The Brood and Videodrome. Shore would be scoring his second American feature after Tom Schiller's still-unreleased 1984 movie Nothing Lasts Forever, which will be the subject of a future podcast episode here, and worked with Scorsese to have the score emulate the style of Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcock's frequent composer. It would be the first of six collaborations between Scorsese and Shore, although the second one would not come until 2002's Gangs of New York. Outside of the score, After Hours was also filled with a number of pop classics, another recurring Scorsese motif. Songs by Cole Porter, Johnny Green, Pat Boone, The Monkees, Joni Mitchell and Peggy Lee would be peppered in throughout the movie, a sort of Greek chorus emitting from home stereos and jukeboxes. When Geffen and Warner saw the final cut, they felt an early fall platform release would be best for the film. Setting September 13th as the date the film would have its first wave of release, after a September 11th invitation-only premiere at the Museum of Modern Art in Midtown Manhattan. On that opening weekend, the film would open at one theater, the Sutton Theater in New York City, which would have showtimes every two hours from noon to midnight, the last show for those who, according to the ad, stay out after hours. Wink, wink. The reviews, as expected for any Scorsese movie at this point, were amazing. The opening weekend ad in the New York Times would feature pull quotes from David Anson of Newsweek, Peter Travers of People Magazine, when a quote from Peter Travers actually meant something, Siskel and Ebert, Andrew Saris from The Village Voice, Rex Reed of The New York Post, when a quote from Rex Reed or The New York Post meant something, Richard Schickel of Time Magazine, Judith Christ, David Denby of New York Magazine, and nearly a dozen other critics 
That's a lot of pull quotes for a single full-page ad. The second weekend of September in 1985 was not a strong week for movies. There was not a single new wide release that weekend. And the other movies that were opening in limited release were the Jane Fonda and Bancroft drama Agnes of God, the French drama L'Addition, which was being sold by New World Pictures as being in the tradition of Blood Simple and Frenzy, a British drama called Weatherby, starring Vanessa Redgrave, Ian Holm, and Judy Dench, a mostly forgotten exploitation film called Sudden Death, an even more forgotten action film called Desert Warrior, and a canon-produced American-Israeli movie called War and Love, featuring Kira Sedgwick in her feature film debut. Back to the Future would remain in first place after 11 weeks of release, and After Hours would gross $45,435 in those first three days, easily topping the $27,694 per screen average racked up by Agnes of God in its eight-screen debut. After two weeks' exclusivity at the Sutton, the movie would expand into 39 theaters in major markets, including the Chinese Theater in Hollywood and the Bruin in Westwood, both with late shows on Friday and Saturday night, for those who stay out after hours. Wink, wink. That weekend, after hours would gross more than $519,000. Its per screen average still the best in the nation. In its fifth week of release, during the four-day holiday weekend, still called Columbus Day at the time, Warners would expand the film to 496 screens, buoyed on by exit polling that indicated the film had positive responses from those in the 18 to 25 age group, and After Hours would gross a cool $2.08 million. But that would be the high point of the movie. The following weekend, the box office total would lose 25% of its weekend gross to $1.54 million, but also consider it lost an extra day of reporting. And from there, it would continue to lose 20 to 25% of its box office each successive weekend until it would leave theaters just after the first of the new year, with a total box office of $10.6 million. When it came to the year-end awards race, After Hours was not much of a contender. There would be no Oscar nominations, and only one Golden Globe nod, Griffin Dunn for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical. Rosanna Arquette would be nominated for a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actress while the National Society of Film Critics would nominate Michael Ballhouse's cinematography. But, strangely enough for a major studio release, through a studio-affiliated production company of a major Hollywood player, the first-ever Independent Spirit Awards would nominate After Hours for five awards, Best Feature, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Female Lead in Rosanna Arquette, and Best Cinematography. Scorsese would win Best Director over Joyce Chopra in Smooth Talk and Peter Masterson's The Trip to Bountiful, and the film would win Best Feature over Smooth Talk, The Trip to Bountiful, and Joel and Ethan Cohen's Blood Simple. The film would also become something of a sensation in France in the spring of 1986. It would have its European premiere as one of the entries into that May's Cannes Film Festival's main competition and Scorsese would win the prize at the festival for Best Director. And at the Caesars, the French equivalent of the Oscar, 
the film would get nominated for Best Foreign Film. But to this day, the film is still overlooked by casual film fans and some Scorsese enthusiasts who tend to focus on his quote-unquote masterpieces like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, and The Departed, which is a shame because it's still a damn good film today. Some people find Paul's predicament impossible, and some are bothered by what seems to be his being constantly emasculated by Kiki and Marcy and Julie and Gail. Some wonder why Paul, once he lost his original $20 bill in the cab, couldn't just find an ATM machine, which would have been fairly prevalent in a city like New York in the mid-80s. I watched it again the night before I'm recording this episode, and the film still cracks with that manic Scorsese energy that makes his films so unique. Griffin Dunn is great, Roseanne Arquette is fantastic, Lindia Fiorentino is amazing, Terry Gar is, well, she's Terry Gar. She's incomparable. It's funny to see both John Hurt and Catherine O'Hara in the same film, but only interact with each other once, considering their pairing on Home Alone five years later. And damn if Scorsese doesn't leave us wanting more of Tommy Chong and Cheech Marin, who only get like three scenes as a pair of house robbers, whose antics put Paul's life in mortal jeopardy. His ninth film as a director, After Hours would be the last low-budget, small-scale, intimate film Scorsese would ever make. Even his portion of the anthology film New York Stories, Life Lessons, basically a two-character piece featuring Nick Nolte as an abstract artist in a complicated relationship with Rosanna Arquette's assistant and former lover, would have a higher budget than After Hours and only run a third of the length. Everything after that, from Goodfellas to The Irishman, has had a budget between $40 million and $200 million, and a running time that exceeded two hours. But it's hard to argue with his success. Seven of his post-after-hours films have been nominated for Best Picture, and he himself has been nominated for 13 Oscars in that time frame, twice for Adapted Screenplay, three times as a producer for a Best Picture nominee, and eight times as a director, winning once for directing The Departed. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and produced by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. And when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep dancing.